Hi everyone, I'm Kevin Kaners, and this is The Elephant. Today in the show, I'm speaking to Peter Eisenberger, a professor in Earth and Environmental Sciences at Columbia University and the co-founder of Global Thermostat, one of just a handful of direct air capture companies in the world that's currently working on capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. I didn't get to speak with Peter for our series last year that we did on direct air capture, so I was really excited to get to speak to him now and hear his thoughts on the technology and how he sees it fitting in with our species meeting the challenge of climate change. In the interview, we talk about how we could create what he calls the renewable energy and materials related economy, whereby using carbon dioxide captured from the air, hydrogen from water and solar power, we could not only reduce the threat of climate change, but make materials that are useful for humanity and create a sustainable economy. We also talk about how the current coronavirus pandemic influenced his thinking on climate change and why, although Peter helps run a private company, he's increasingly convinced that all organizations within the direct air capture sector need to cooperate to help accelerate the technology as quickly as possible. And to that end right now, Peter is in the process of organizing a summit that will take place in July that will bring key people together from the industry in an, an attempt to speed up the technology's learning curve. I reached Peter by Zoom in Northern California. Here's our conversation. Well, Peter, welcome to The Elephant. Well, thank you for doing this. I wanted to just start off by asking you a bit about how your own personal interest or journey in air capture begun. I know that you've had a Global Thermostat since you helped co-found it in 2006. How much further before that were you interested in this topic? Well, it actually goes by way back, probably before, maybe before you were born in the 80s when the world thought they were running out of oil, hard to believe, and there were long gas lines. And I was uh, working as a physicist at AT&T Bell Laboratories, and Exxon decided that they had to stop becoming an oil company and become an energy company. And uh, they spent $250 million building a laboratory, hired about 1,000 PhDs, and I joined them initially as a lab director and eventually ran that laboratory of 1,000 PhDs. And then we looked at how to develop all sorts of different forms of energy to replace oil. And my, my particular group was working on solar at the time, but there were all these synthetic approaches to make liquid fuels. In any case, in thinking about the problem, uh, at that time I came up with this, uh, I guess you would call it vision or notion, that in the end, humankind had to get its energy in harmony with nature and so we had to mimic the photosynthetic process, which involves taking CO2 from the air, hydrogen from water, with the energy source being the sun. So that sort of stuck in my uh, head from those days. And then uh, fast forward, I left there when the Arabs dropped the price of a barrel of oil from $100 to $10 in one day. They made all the, these all alternatives uh, not economically viable. And of course, demonstrated there was plenty of oil anyway. And so I left there and eventually joined Columbia University as the founding director of the Earth Institute, where certainly I was exposed to the climate change issue big time. And I met my co-founder, Professor Chilchinitsky. And I also ran into, I gave a course on closing the carbon cycle and uh, invited uh, Klaus Lackner to give a guest lecture and he talked about his efforts to take CO2 from the air. And I became very excited 
and uh, ran up to him and said, well, you know, with that piece plus solar, if we drive it to solar energy, we can really address, uh, come up with not only addressing the threat of climate change, but come up with a new industrial ecology that would be sustainable by its very nature. In any case, for various reasons, we didn't end up working together. And so I decided to uh, form a company with uh, uh, Graciela Chutzuniski to take CO2 from the air. And as you pointed out, that was started way back when we recognized, even then we published a paper in 2009, which showed that there was no way by just a combination of efficiency, uh, renewable energy implementation, cleaning up our fossil fuel sources to uh, avoid the catastrophic effect of climate change. That really, we're going to be in a situation we're going to have to take CO2 out of the air that we already put in. So, in short, that's the story of how I got into it. Is there anything specifically that sets your technology at Global Thermostat apart from other companies in the same space? Oh, yeah, definitely very distinctive. The challenge in air capture, simply put, is that is the first step. That is, you, you have to find something that can absorb the 400 parts per million CO2, but has to process 3,000 times as much mass of air to get to the 400 parts per million CO2. And so once you capture the CO2, all the downstream processes are the same, that is, compared to food gas. And, it, and people thought for a long time, because it was so difficult, there's a, there's a rule in chemical engineering that suggests that separation processes scale like one over the concentration, but it's just the first step. And so we found a way to make that first step very efficient and much more efficient than the alternative approaches by using a, a similar device to the catalytic converter in your car. That catalytic converter in your car, which processes the exhaust from your car, we have the similar design, except we replace the precious metals with a CO2 selective absorbent. And the advantage of that is like in your car, you can't have much resistance to flow. Resistance to flow is the energy price you pay for having to move the 3,000 times of air through the device to capture the CO2. And we came up in the, in the catalytic converter. It has a, it's a very special flow regime because what, the, what a catalytic converter is, is it's sort of parallel channels, about two millimeters in opening with about a tenth, two tenths or a tenth of a millimeter thick walls. And you pass the air through the channels. And it, because it has this long parallel surface, it, it flows in what's called laminar flow. In laminar flow, the resistance is very limited because most of the air passes without touching the wall at all. And just, there's just surface tension at the wall surface that provides any resistance. And so that right away makes us having more CO2 coming through. And, and then you need less power for, for fans, for example. Exactly, exactly, right. What would you say the, the state of direct air capture is right now? I mean, it's already been 14 years since the two of you founded the company. Right. I mean, that 14 years ago is an unbelievably long time, given that even until a few years ago, it didn't seem to be, at least to my reckoning, talked about very much. How would you say it's changed in the, the past few years? Well, you know, first of all, we recognized and published a paper in 2009 that the world would not be able to solve climate change without taking CO2 out of the air. And uh, it took 2014 in the IPCC report for them to finally acknowledge that. But in the last couple of years, it's been like a, somebody turned a light switch on. We can't uh, deal with all the interest there is now in direct air capture. With the IPC report and with the National Academy report, 
it's just been like a, a dramatic change in the recognition that this is important and we'll be seized by interest as is all the other uh, air capture companies. It's amazing. This crucial thing really basically has three and maybe four companies in the world that have even looked into this problem at all. Yeah, and then suddenly it seems like a lot more money is going into this area. For example, I just I think this month I read Climeworks raised seventy million dollars or so, and last summer I know that Carbon Engineering raised similar amounts. Has that been a, a big change? Definitely. What we've really focused in on, somewhat distinctive to the other companies, our company is really focused in on addressing the threat of climate change, and so we formed a, a joint development with Exxon Mobil to scale our technology up to the gigaton scale. And uh, we've been working with them for about nine months. And uh, recently they became very excited. They put a you know, 10 people team that have looked at our technology, became very excited with it. We're scaling it up so that we're initiating a new enhanced agreement with them, as I said, to scale it up to the gigaton scale. And we're also talking to other companies to join this consortium that we're trying to develop to advance direct air capture so it can be relevant to the, to the climate change challenge, which as you know, means the Africa gets roughly to the 40 gigaton per year scale capacity. Can you tell me a bit more about that, that deal with Exxon? Like what, how does it, what does it actually mean on paper or in, in practice? Well, what I have to tell you is I was really, I'm sure as many of your listeners will be skeptical about, even though I had worked at Exxon, I knew they were great people but in the in recent past, they had somehow not been very responsive. But I, it turned out I met a, the vice president for R&D, Vijay Swarup, who incidentally I had hired 40 years ago, just before I left Exxon. And he was very persuasive that, to me that Exxon really wanted to help solve this problem. And, and, and it's turned out to be true. The, the relationship is really one of trying to address the problem and, and, and work together in a collaborative way with this common mission. So I can't, of course, tell you about the details of the agreement, but I can tell you that it's very supportive of our efforts and recognizes some of the difficulties of, of a big company working with a small company, which is always uh, somewhat difficult, but it's really been a very positive experience. And as I said, uh, because of that positiveness, we're expanding it to others and there'll be news shortly about others joining this consortium to, to move forward. Other other air capture companies or? No, other, other industrial companies. Okay. By the way, Kevin, in parallel, because of this pandemic, I have really become, uh, I don't know, almost radicalized about the need to introduce another variable into this equation called time. Because what we've learned from the pandemic that you can't wait till the threat's upon you, right? This is this is amazing Columbia study that came out that showed if we had started social distancing two weeks earlier in the United States, we may have saved as much as 50,000 lives. So uh, this applies to avoiding the, to the equivalent of the pandemic in climate changes that go above the tipping point. We have these catastrophic release of CO2, which is some debate is either at 450 parts per million or maybe even lower, which is two degrees or even lower. And so uh, because of that, I have gotten funding uh, for an effort to mobilize for direct air capture and connecting it up to this renewable energy and materials economy that I can talk to you about in a little while. So that's something that's being done together with the Climeworks and Carbon Engineering, together with 
lots of other people in the carbon space, uh, the XPRIZE, uh, there are lots of people who are joining us in this, uh, this summit we're having on July 20th to try to mobilize for climate change via having a significant enhanced effort for direct air capture. Okay, so, so the summit is bringing the people who work in this area together in order to try to speed up development? Yes, exactly. To, to have a comprehensive a program that will involve government efforts and you know, policy efforts and, and also recognizing that in the industrial sector, there's going to have to be cooperation, just like there is now in the pandemic to develop a vaccine. You're not going to get there if this is done with everybody worrying about competing with one another. We have to really all cooperate and collaborate to meet this challenge in a timely manner. And is that, I mean, in practical sense, do you, how do you view yourself vis-a-vis like Climeworks and, and Klaus Lackner's new venture? Yes, I, I view them all as colleagues, all of them contributing to this noble cause. And I, in my, my own personal point of view is we should help each other as much as we can. You know, you, you mentioned this collaboration with, with Exxon, which fits into something that Klaus mentioned to me, which is how air capture is kind of stuck in the middle between different sides in the climate change debate. You know, on the one hand, there would be deniers or people who don't want to take any action or don't see the, the worth of taking any action. And a lot of green groups and environmentalists on the other side that would see the fossil fuel companies as the, the primary causers of the problem of climate change and our inability over the last couple of decades not to take sufficient action on it. So could you talk about how you see air capture fitting in towards the overall climate change problem, especially since you're you're working with uh, Exxon and, and some people say air capture just, you know, gives fossil fuels a longer lease on life? Right. I'm well aware of that argument. I can certainly tell you that. Well, look, I, I believe that's really a fundamentally misplaced notion. I mean, we're having this talk today because of the benefits that we've gotten from the energy systems we've had till now. And, you know, my own view is the coal miners who took care of us are not criminals, but they should have been retrained for the new economy. And it's not helpful to look back and blame people because of things in the past that we all benefited from, but recognize now we all have to come together. And as I said, you can see that the energy sector is responding positively. I think they're genuine about it. Uh, You can you can argue whether that genuineness is something because they recognize it's very important to their business or because they also have grandchildren and are worried about the future. I can tell you that Vijay Swarup is, is both. He's concerned for his business, but he's also concerned as a human being for the future of this planet. And because it's become so clear, that's catastrophic. So my, my view has always been, having worked in the energy sector and having an understanding of the scale needed to mount a global solution, that we had to have that whole infrastructure part of the solution. We couldn't, we couldn't afford the time to build up a whole independent new energy uh, infrastructure. And so that, that is something that I think would feel very strongly a point. We ought to find ways to work together. And by the way, there's a real nuance that is going to really be a mind bender for, for probably a lot of your uh, listeners. I've developed a, a technology that enables a direct air capture machine to simultaneously capture the CO2 from the air and from the flu. And because it's the same capital structure, it enables one to do things that one couldn't think of doing before. For example, one can now have uh, used natural gas power plants to make renewable energy sources dispatchable. 
What do you What do you mean by dispatchable? Meaning that twenty four per hours uh, deliver you energy all the time by switching back between a renewable energy source and a and a natural gas energy source. So it's all it's just you can have electricity anytime you want it. It doesn't depend on whether the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. Oh, okay. And and how does the the, the air capture fit in? Because before, if you had to clean up the natural gas power source to move its carbon, then because it's only used one third of the time, any capture technology would be three times more expensive. And that, that made it not economically viable because we've developed a way to simultaneously remove CO2 from the air and from the fossil fuel source at the same time. We've been able to reduce those costs by three and make it economically viable and actually make it economically more attractive than the cost of storing it. And so what this enables you to do, just to make it explicit, if you're capturing CO2 from the air, about two-thirds is from the air and one-third is from the flu. So what happens is you end up removing a net. If you take that CO2 that comes out of this combined machine and store it, either sequestering it or our preferred thing is monetize it by putting it in solid materials like cement, carbon fiber, and plastics. You can use the natural gas infrastructure to actually accelerate the rate at which we could address the threat of climate change. So while we build up our renewable energy sources to get them to be the dominating form of energy, uh, this will help accelerate the rate at which we can address the threat of climate change. And as I said, the thing that's so clear from the pandemic experience is that time is really the most crucial factor here. You know, when I think about it, I, and I really do think about it, I have three beautiful grandchildren, and I just think about that every six-month delay here could be hell in their lives in the future. And we really have to take this seriously, and we really have to mobilize, much like we did before when we were, when we were confronted with, with challenges, either the, the challenges in the war with the Manhattan Project or the Marshall Plan after the war. Both those things are, are needed uh, in this space in order to address the threat we face. But the beautiful thing about this, which I, I, I find so almost unbelievable, by switching to this, this new energy ecology that's in harmony with nature, it has this fundamentally fascinating property. Namely, in the old economy, the natural resource-based economy, the more energy you use, the more destruction you did. And of course, we didn't price that in to the cost of the, of the fuels we got, and that was a real fundamental mistake. However, in the case of this using CO2 from the air, hydrogen from water, and, and the sun, the more you do that, the more sun you use, the more CO2 you use, the more hydrogen water you get, the more you store in materials. You're growing the economy because you're producing products of energy and materials that are useful. And at the same time, you're increasing the rate at which you sequester the CO2 and address the threat of climate change. So now you've turned something that, something that had a negative feedback between meeting your energy needs and harmony with nature to a positive feedback, the more we meet the climate change challenge, the more we develop our economy, the more the developing world can have jobs and grow and increase their living standards. And I've actually written a paper on the renewable energy and materials economy that shows in the next 50 years, we can create a future world where everybody's living at the standard of living that's currently in the developed world. And they can do that in a way that's in harmony with nature, but and actually enhances our ability to address the threat of climate change rather than making it more difficult. So this, this positive feedback loop makes the potentials almost for quote unquote exponential growth in economic development, 
which is what's needed because as you know, the pandemic and climate change, once it takes off, is also an exponential process of growing. That is the, the danger of the tipping points is you start having these catastrophic releases of CO2, they give you a bump in warming, which further enhances warming. And that's when you have runaway climate change, which is the real danger that we're facing. And we have to really, as I said, mobilize so we stay below 450 and avoid uh, the potential threat of unleashing these catastrophic releases of CO2. And, and how do you see that? How is the, the relationship a positive one? Think of it in, in, in nature. If you use more sun, more water and more CO2, you have a tropical forest, right? You have that's the most rich natural system. Well, the same thing applies to us here, because the more CO2, the more sun we use and the more water we use, the more materials we make, the more energy we make, the more jobs we have the increased standard of living that it happens. So you build in a healthy human industrial ecology that's complete in harmony with the healthy natural energy economy. It's really using the power of science, just like we were learning in the pandemic, to solve the problems we face. And what do you think the, the most important thing in terms of accelerating the pace of solving climate change is? I mean, you mentioned the Manhattan Project and the Marshall Plan. Are those the types of actions that you think are necessary to, to help combat climate change? Yeah, definitely. And so the, the key issue is the rate, the time scale. I'll give you an example. In my calculation, it seems to me that if we really want to address climate change, eventually we have to get it a doubling time of six months. That is double the capacity every six months of direct air capture. Well, the fastest that's ever been achieved in any other technology is a year. And the Chinese roughly approached that when they made their recent push on uh, solar. And so the real issue is to develop a, a cooperation in the industrial sector, cooperation across the, the planet to focus on this threat and but recognizing it rather than it's currently being portrayed as a cost of the economy, it's really an opportunity to grow the economy. What I say many times when asked is that, and which I think is another feature of this, and I'm trying very hard to get the message out, and that's why I welcome the opportunity to speak to you, is that you know Martin Luther the King didn't say, I have a nightmare. He could have said, I have a nightmare. He was living a nightmare, but he said, I have a dream. And what I'm saying is there is this real science-based future for us that really is one in which we can live in harmony with nature and at the same time address many of the uh, many of the needs that are plaguing us today in terms of uh, lack of equity lack of economic development and across the planet so it's really you know to me it's just a really quite amazing and it, there's something deep about it that when you get in harmony with nature that things seem to all line up yet when you push against nature it pushes back on you and so, as I said, to me, it's uh, the, the, uh, the pandemic has really woken me up. I mean, I always knew climate change was a problem, obviously, and that's why I devoted my life to it. But I didn't emotionally connect to it in some deep sense. And what happened with this pandemic and see what devastation it could create in a, in a global economy and among people and the lives it took, right, really made me realize that this was child's play compared to what was going to happen if we had catastrophic climate change and made me just switch my focus recently from pushing the technology to try to bring the community together to try to organize and mobilize for climate change. 
and have been, have been very pleased with the response of the community and have also been pleased by many people who have offered support, financial and otherwise, to enable this effort to proceed. So I'm aiming for trying to present some plan to the new administration and to the UN. We have a series of uh, outlets coming to us where we hope to share this at Climate Week, potentially uh, using TED and, and also in COP to try to get this before decision makers to recognize that these extraordinary actions have to be taken. So just to put a fine point on it, what you're advocating is having like a big coordinated stimulus package, basically exactly for climate renewable or direct air capture technologies. Yes, renew- yeah, right. This focus is renewable energy, CO2 from the air and carbon to value. You know, CO- converting the CO, all the different ways you can convert CO2 into carbon fiber, into cement, into plastic, into your chemicals. There's a whole thing. And all those downstream things exist. They're all in the early stages like air capture and they all need their support. But it's, 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 Kevin, it's really much more than a stimulus. You know, we have to find ways to work together that are different than what you normally do when you stimulate the economy, right? You know, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but during World War II, Ford switched from making uh, cars to making tanks and Exxon switched from making what it was doing to making rubber. And what I'm saying is that what's needed is a, is a reorientation of the industrial sector to build the new industrial ecology together in which all the companies and the people can flourish. And, and what are your, I guess, hopes for that happening? I mean, it, with the pandemic, it, it all happened so quickly. So it feels like it's easy emotionally to, to make the, the argument, whereas climate change, I mean, you, you yourself said you didn't uh, connect with it emotionally until recently. How do you think that kind of sense of urgent togetherness would come about? Well, look, look <laughs> nothing's easy. You know, I have this saying, if they don't tell you what you're doing is crazy, it's not worth doing. <laughs> and so uh, I'm not trying to minimize the difficulty of injecting this sense of urgency into the system. What I will say is that I'm not alone in this emotional transformation. And you could, you could relate a lot of the demonstrations that are going on now as a result of people, you know, being isolated and themselves emotionally rethinking the, the world they've been in and having an aspiration for a different future. And I'm saying, I think this is, the energy has always been at the base of civilization and its transformations. And so I see this as a next industrial revolution that can address a lot of the problems from the past industrial revolution. And at the same time, create a, a very positive future for all of us. And, and you know, to really say, if you ask me, I, I, I don't know if I could tell you what the odds are of this succeeding, and, and time again is important. I know it will ultimately succeed because there is no other approach, actually. I've, what people say when I uh, share with them my uh, paper on this stuff, they, they do say this is the only holistic solution they've seen because it addresses the issues of economic development, social development, and energy development all in one coherent approach. But still, having uh, said that, you know, it's there are so many so many different points of view. I mean, uh, for example, so many people now think that planting trees is a solution to climate change, but it can't solve climate change. It's certainly good to have healthy forests, right? But that's one of the reasons I 
tried to raise money for and tried to hold this conference to bring the people together and see if they couldn't agree on some coherent plan. Because right now we have so many different approaches, you know, organic approaches, do it organically, uh, draw down. They're all good. Uh, none of them are not heading us in the right direction for a better future, but none of them can scale to address the threat of climate change and, and the, the pandemic level of it. And certainly none of them can do it anywhere near the time needed. And so I'm hoping, and I'm seeing it, if you, if you listen to the news, and obviously it's not front and center right now, but increasingly you're hearing people saying, you know, we have to apply the lessons from the pandemic to climate change. I'm, not, I'm certainly not the lone voice in saying that. And so I think that will grow. And I'm hoping that, that we also recognize which is, you know, jobs programs to retrain people for the new industrial ecology. It involves lots of things that could rightfully be viewed as a, quote unquote, as you said, a stimulus package to get the global economy going and get it going in the right direction. I've also heard people say the same sort of thing. They said, when we have these stimulus packages, we don't want to rebuild the old system. We want to build the future system we want. And I'm suggesting that having a renewable energy and materials economy based on the inputs to production being the sun, CO2 from the air, and water, is the new industrial college we'd like to build together. And what's the materials part in that plan? Okay, so once you have CO2 and hydrogen, the petrochemical industry knows how to convert that to almost anything you want, right? It's something also I didn't appreciate. So much of our economy, just like natural life is based on carbon, well, a lot of our technology is based on carbon. The biggie in this whole thing is carbon fiber because it's been shown that carbon fiber can be more advantageous in our, all our infrastructure than both steel and aluminum. So in my calculations, I've shown that if you replace the our building materials of steel and aluminum and concrete with carbon from air-based carbon fiber, including synthetic aggregate for uh, concrete like uh, Blue Planet is doing, that there's more than enough carbon in a world that has grown to meet the the economic needs of the developing world to store the CO2 in those products that are monetized and create a positive feedback, economic feedback in terms of jobs and economic development. So we'd take the CO2, capture the CO2 out of the air, transform it with energy, and then you could build things like carbon fiber that would be used in the infrastructure, like bridges or... Right. The infrastructure, I mean, I don't know if viewers know that, but carbon fiber per strength per weight is 15 times steel and five times aluminum. And so when you take that into account, it really is a superior product. And what, what many people here say to me when they hear first and say, oh, Peter, but that doesn't make sense. Because what you're doing to get that carbon, you have to undo the bond between the carbon and oxygen. And that's the very bond that was formed during combustion. That's going to be so expensive. How is it going to work? Well, I point out to them right away that do they know that the aluminum and steel industry together make 10% of our energy needs because it's much more energy costly to separate iron from its ore and aluminum from its ore than it is to remove carbon from its oxygen. And so it also works out that energetically, it's more efficient to make carbon fiber than it is to make steel and aluminum, even though you're, you're doing it by reversing the process of combustion. Of course, that's exactly what nature does, right? So what nature does, it after it produces the energy for life in a leaf, 
it expires the CO2 in the air, and that CO2 comes back in. And when it comes back in, it's divided into two things. Part of it grows the tree trunks and, and structure, which is sequestering the carbon, and part of it is converted into sugar that is used as the basis for the energy of life. And we're just going to mimic that, taking a segue. Now, of course, there are going to be places where it also makes sense to just sequester the CO2 underground. And again, direct air capture has some advantages in that sense, because you can locate the capturing of the CO2 right where you're going to sequester it. But I do believe there's enough to, to put it mostly into value products. But again, time is most important. And so I'm sure we'll take advantage of, of that as well as, as other approaches that I said are very important, you know, increase the rate of solar development, increase our energy efficiency, improve the way we use the land, improve our, our forestry, all these things are necessary. But the only one that can scale to remove the, the crucial piece of removing CO2 that's in the air, take that out to avoid catastrophic climate change, as far as I know, is direct air capture. The second one, that may most plausible one is enhanced weathering. That could have the scale that might address the problem, but it suffers, in my opinion, from the fact it's just a cost to the economy. It doesn't have this positive effect of being transformed into something that uh, is useful to our species. I'd be curious to ask uh, you a bit more about global thermostat directly. I'm curious what uh, infrastructure you have currently. Okay, so we have had to this date three large-scale demonstration plants. First one in 2010 was on direct air capture. The second one in 2013 was used for food gas. As I told you, now we've combined the two into one unit, so we can do both food gas and air capture. And then in, in 2016, we had a plant in Huntsville, which was a 4,000 ton per year unit for direct air capture. And, and now we're completing our fourth one, which we think this will be ready for commercial utilization in Oklahoma, and it's going to be operational this summer. And, and commercial in terms of it would be the first one that would sell the CO2 to a customer? Yes. But remember, uh, we're, we're very interested in doing that, and we have some really big brand name companies that are want our CO2 that we're working with. But remember, uh, as I said, I'm still keeping the focus on that. But this mobilization issue is such that I'm increasingly spending my effort, my own personal effort, to try to get something. The way I characterize it is one thing in this, in this world to try to push yourself to a new idea and a new infrastructure. And the other thing is to be pulled to it because of the need, the strategic need. And maybe the best example of that is shipbuilding in World War II. If you look how fast we built ships before the war, and then look how fast we ended up building ships when it became necessary for our security, it was amazing the transformation we made. So yes, this plant is very important. We, and it's going to be very important because we'll hope to bring the world there and show you see it, it, it can be done. But at the same time, in my opinion, we can't wait to do this in a sequential manner. We got to have the system ready, preparing to move forward. And if for some reason there's a problem with what we do, well, then take the next step and move on. As I said, this, I view this as a collaborative effort with the work that, for example, Climeworks has done in demonstrating the many uses 
of CO2, I think has been invaluable in helping people understand the role that the direct air capture can, uh, can address. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's going to take an industry to do this. And that's one of the reasons why I've started to put my energy to try to pull us all together, both on the air capture side, but also on the industrial client side. And, and try to say, you can't just wait for us to sell it to you. You've got to help us get it there. And, and in, in terms of like what would be needed to make it commercially viable and stable and direct air capture as an industry, are there any policies you think are, are necessary, like specific policies that you think are necessary? Or would people be buying the CO2 commercially, even though it might be more expensive than other sources of CO2, just because it's a, a good thing for the planet? Okay, very good question, Kevin. So, you know, our goal has always been straight up competition to be cheaper. However, I, I do realize both for the conversion to renewable to accelerate the price, you need some carbon policy. And what, what, what does that mean to me? I don't know if your listeners are aware, but the current carbon policy we have is really f- very flawed. It has introduced the concept of avoided carbon. So what avoided carbon enables one to do in today's carbon policy is take CO2 from a dome in the West, ship it by pipeline to the Permian Basin, inject the CO2 underground, and because you store some of the CO2 that was already stored before and uh, pushing out the oil that when you burn will add more CO2 to the atmosphere to get a carbon credit for doing that. What, what is needed is, uh, is a carbon, let's say a life cycle analysis that puts the boundary at the atmosphere and says any process through its life cycle that ends up adding more CO2 to the atmosphere, that's going to be a, a cost. Any, any process that's neutral, fine. Any process that actually ends up removing and sequestering CO2 so it's not taken out of the atmosphere should get a, a benefit. And there should be some, some limits set on carbon. Now, whether it's a carbon tax or a carbon market, that's beyond my... Uh, but you need something to drive the system in that direction. So I would say that's one. The other thing I definitely need enhanced R&D on the many carbon to value technologies that like our technology, like our company are struggling to get, you know, via the standard thing of investments and, and small company startups. There are lots of really young people in your generation who have come out of my courses at I mean, I mean, the same generation really who want to be part of, contribute to the problem, solving the problem. And they, they have the same struggle we do in the current system for, for introducing new technologies. So we need a, sort of a Manhattan type project, both for DAC and the carbon to value technologies is an important part of that. And then clearly, this is a global problem. We need global cooperation. And so something related to the United Nations some effort to develop a coherent global effort is also required. And so I think all those things are coming together. But again, it's not just the policies, but the way we work together, right, is, is, has to be more like uh, the way the drug companies are working together to find a vaccine than the way, you know, maybe let's say when Edison introduced electricity and there was this fierce competition between him and Westinghouse to bring the new technology to bear. In this case, I don't think that's, that's not an appropriate way to go. 
What what would you say that e-fuels are in the overall solution? It's something you mentioned you worked on back in, in the 80s already, and now it seems to be right. finally getting to a place where maybe it, it will start playing a, a tiny part of the solution. I guess, how important of a role do you see them as having in a, in a future sustainable economy? Oh, I actually... I actually believe that they have a, should have a very sizable role. I know people think that, and I certainly have advantages of having electric vehicles uh, as a major form uh, for providing our non-airplane boats and large truck energies. I have a slightly different point of view. I believe that you can make renewable gasoline and it's completely clean gasoline, you know, it takes CO2 from the air, hydrogen water, and when you burn it, you release CO2 in water. And it's a complete closed cycle. And I believe we should run as much of our infrastructure on that. And here's the reason why. The It's again getting to this question of, do we have to rebuild a, a whole new infrastructure, which is a cost to the economy, or not? So for me, do I want to build a whole new hydrogen fueling stations or or electric plug-in units around the planet and and have all the retooling and all that stuff, uh, uh, trillions of dollars, or do I want to invest that, for example, in education and and then keep the development of synthetic fuels uh, going? So because of this time factor, I'm as much in favor of using the existing infrastructure as well as we can so that we don't have to spend money building new infrastructure and as I said before, using the industrial expertise, capabilities, and resources of the petrochemical industry to be part of the solving the problem, that's a big boost, right? And they seem all to genuinely wanting to be part of this solution and are showing it with real actions. So that's a very positive development. And I think that we should look at all through our, our options and find out how much can we use the existing infrastructure to be part of the solution. Where do we need new infrastructure that we don't have? And then, of course, over the long term, one can think about that maybe the balance between electrification as a as a source of our energy and liquid fuels as a source of our energy. As you know, electricity is hard to store. Liquid fuels are easy to store. Finally, I have this general notion that when we eventually get down to thinking about it in a coherent manner, there'll be some benefit to having a diversity of energy sources. Are you intimidated at all by the thought of how much more energy we'll need to create or generate when we look at what a a completely climate sustainable world would look like? Because I I spoke to one person on the show, Solomon Goldstein Rose, and he pointed out that he estimates would need somewhere like eight times the amount of electricity generation that we have now because you know we'd also be making things like the the e-fuels and also raising the standard of living everywhere and completely getting off of fossil fuels so uh, how do you see that challenge all right first of all i think we need 20 times not eight to really achieve global equity that's what my calculations show but uh, leaving that aside so here's what here's my view. I've been in the energy uh, R and D for a long time, and I believe that at some point in the not too distant future, we will develop fusion or other nuclear sources of energy that will give us, you know, Einstein's E equals M C squared. 
we have infinite energy sources by converting deltas of mass through, nu through nuclear reactions into energy. So that's the long-term solution. We now got what photosynthesis does. We all have to replace the sun with our own version of it, which is fusion. But uh, fusion has been one of those things that's always seems 10, 10 years away in perpetuity. <laughs> right. Well, look, even at my growth rate of 20, we're only using 10% of the sun hitting the planet. So we have a quite a way to go before we have to run about, worry about running out of the sun. And I think, I, I, look, I'm a big fan of the fact that we have shown ourselves to be a very ingenious species. The combination of our brain and knowledge has turned out to be amazingly powerful. And if I, this is a side comment, that's my view. That's our role on this planet as a species. We are, we're as natural as a tree. We came out of the same processes as a tree does. And yet I believe that we, are, we solve the, the problem that evolution, uh, genetic evolution didn't, wasn't able to solve. That is the ability to anticipate the future. Right. I, what I say in my class is the dinosaurs didn't know an asteroid was coming. And if they did, they couldn't do anything about it. Whereas we, as part of nature now, know an asteroid is going to hit us again and are developing defenses so it doesn't have to hurt us. So I'm very confident that we will develop via the various efforts going on some form of nuclear, quote unquote, energy. Uh, my, my favorite is fusion as opposed to fission. And so, you know, we got 10 or 20 years to do it and using the sun, and that's all going to be great. And as the, that demand starts to get maybe difficult to do, because you've gotten the sun from most of the best places, I'm, I'm very confident in your generation, you will get your energy from fusion or some other form of nuclear. I'm curious about just one more specific thing about global thermostat or the, how these technologies work in that uh, I know that you need relatively high temperatures or, you know, relatively low temperatures, depending on your perspective, but that in order to get the carbon dioxide back off of the amine solution, you need something like 85 degrees or so. And so I'm curious once the, if, if it does successfully scale up, where that energy would be coming from. Right. That's a very good question, Kevin. So uh, there are two answers to that. I have a uh, uh, swimming pool that's completely solar heated, but it's with solar hot water. So first of all, I believe the, just like solar uh, photovoltaics is coming down in temperature, and of course, I believe that solar thermal will as well. But having said that, I do believe, and I did this study back when I was at Exxon, I compared with the long term whether it's going to be concentrated solar power, that's with the mirrors. And I, I don't know if you caught this recent development uh, of this new artificially intelligent driven mirrors that made this breakthrough for concentrated solar. Anyway, my, my study indicated to me that that was going to win for industrial scale producing of electricity. Uh, that is concentrated solar over solar photovoltaic. It would be the distributed form, but the major industrial ones Will eventually be solar thermal and in that case of course you have heat galore to use right and so i don't i don't see the world as a wash in that and in, in under 100 degrees centigrade heat and so i don't see that as being a problem at all okay and then the idea is that you could build a, a plant or a unit beside one of these oh yeah definitely definitely the advantages of 
I don't believe you're going to have, as you do now, large concentrated facilities on one technology. But you're going to have these industrial complexes, which on the same site, you'll have something that produces your energy and something that converts it to process. A good example is we're involved in an exciting process uh, project uh, down in Chile, where they're going to take advantage of the very strong wind energy down there, together with our technology of CO2 from the air, and together using that cheap electricity to do electrolysis to boot hydrogen, and then on-site convert that to gasoline that's green and ship it to Europe uh, for use in, uh, in vehicles. And, and again, the interesting thing, a lot of these sites exist in the developing world and can provide the basis for them to build their own locally controlled industrial ecology that will serve their needs in the long term. So for example, right now in Chile, they don't have any use for that. There's no infrastructure to take the electricity where the wind is to uh, support their own economy. But eventually that's, that's gonna happen. Their, their economy will grow and rather than shipping that fuel to, to Europe, they'll be able to use it themselves. Great. Is there, is there anything else that I didn't get to that you, you would like to mention? Nothing other than, you know, restating how I think we have to all come together, recognize everybody has these different ideas and maybe, you know, I have my idea and I'm trying to share that, but have an open and very hard dialogue with each other, recognizing this issue of time and need to come together in a coherent program, i.e. the Manhattan Project or building ships. And uh, so I just really want to encourage that and, and not worry about whose it is or what it is, but all focus on addressing the, the threat we face and recognizing that in doing so, not only are we addressing that threat, but we're also preparing a better future for your generation and, and, for, and certainly for my grandchildren. Well, I, I certainly hope we get that sort of uh, collaboration too. And on, on that note, I, I wish you all the best uh, for the summit that, that you're organizing as well. And I, I, Kevin, I want to thank you for the sort of effort you're doing in, in, a lot, in enhancing communication is so vital to this uh, thing. And maybe after the summit, uh, we might have another interview and I'd be glad to share with you what came out. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much, Peter. All right. Thank you very much, Kevin. Okay, thanks. Enjoy your day. Same to you. Bye. That was Peter Eisenberger, co-founder and chief technological officer of Global Thermostat, one of a handful of leading direct air capture companies in the world. Special thanks to Nadia Koch for helping set up the interview. I'm Kevin Kaners. See you next time.